day. We uh, didn't get very far in one sense, that being that we um, really got down to page one. And by the way, there's some more books of these up here. Not that they're any great shakes or anything, but if you if anybody wants one or hasn't got one and wants one, there they are here. Now, what we tried to do was lay a foundation for the, the, the study and perception of Bible prophecy and the reason why the Almighty has seen fit to devote one-third of His divine revelation to that subject. Now, when you get down to brass tacks, you have a kid, you see, about 16 years old. Now, you've taught them about Jonah and the whale, the walls of Jericho falling down, uh, the slingshot that uh, David used to slay the giant, the fleeces of Gideon, and all these Bible stories. The kid is now 16. He's been to high school. He's been thoroughly indoctrinated with the theory of evolution that it all came four and a half billion years ago from the slime. Uh, he's been thoroughly indoctrinated with all sorts of rock music which completely depraves and degenerates the mind uh, in spite of the fact that you've tried to you know, keep him in a bit of a glass case. Nevertheless, the glass breaks and cracks and he's out there a bit. Now, a confrontation is going to take place. And he's going to say either to you or to himself, is this thing for real? Is this um, book that they've been reading these Bible stories out of and telling me about in Sunday school, is this thing for real or not? Now, what are you going to tell them? Now, in the case of Jesus and the apostles they were able to back up the preaching by what method? How could they do it? They come along and they say, we're preaching to you folk the kingdom of God, and we're telling you this, and we're telling you that, and so forth. Now, somebody says to, to them, is this thing for real? How did they back it up? Of course, by they say, we'll tell you how to back it up, because there's a dead man laying there, and we're going to raise him from the dead. There's a blind man over here, and we're going to cure him of blindness. There's a leper over there, and we're going to cure him of leprosy. That's how we'll demonstrate that we have uh, a divine commission. And what we are saying is for real. Now, are we able to do that? If our teenager comes to us, and he or she is ready to go off to college and get the, the mind and spirit further broken, what do we come along with? We can't raise the dead or cure the blind. So how do we sit? What can we do to, to demonstrate the veracity of the Bible? Do we say, well, I'll tell you. Um, we, we believe this thing, and uh, my father believed it, and your grandfather believed it, and we think you should believe it too, you know? It's a pretty good thing to believe. Is that, is that, is that our answer? What do we do? What, what, what are we saying? Right. See, the, the reason I, I spent all that time yesterday wasn't because I had nothing else to talk about. 
The reason is that the demonstration that we give them about the veracity of the Bible is fulfilled prophecy. That is the link that we have to veracity. And that's the, unless somebody understands that, the whole theory of Bible prophecy um, doesn't mean anything to anybody. So you get a brother who comes along and says, well, uh, I don't know really much, much about Bible prophecy. I, I, I think I read part of the book of Revelation once and I don't understand Daniel. And as for Hosea and Zechariah, I, I, I don't paint it. I'm a New Testament Christadelphian. That's for me. I'm the golden rule. You see, uh, when he talks to his teenager, he really hasn't got anything to talk about. Because the Rotary Club are talking about the golden rule too. Is that for real? Is it any more real than what we have? So the, 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 the latter day, the, 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 the tool that God has given us in this generation is to demonstrate the veracity of the Scriptures by means of demonstrating the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, it wouldn't mean a hoot if anybody else could do it. The, the, the point of the whole system is that only God can do it. That's why we those five verses and passages of Scripture on page one Get a big red pen on your, on your, uh, in your Bible and put a great big circle or underline or something around those five verses because they are the key to the whole business. If anybody else could do it, then we, we, we're just one, we're, we're just a me too proposition. But since God is the only one who can predict the future with the criterion that we talked about yesterday, then we have something to demonstrate some, something with. And when you get a hold of your teenager and he says, well, I don't know whether what you people believe is right or not. My professor uh, in social science, he says this, and my professor over here says that. And I don't know whether you people know what you're talking about or not. You've got to have something to tell them. No good talking to them about agape at that point. No good at all. You might just as well talk to the walls. You've got to have something to demonstrate what the veracity of the Bible is all about. And if you don't know what it's all about, how on earth are you going to tell your teenager what it's all about? So when we, when we say that uh, it's very important that the, that the Christadelphian body have a handle on the topic of Bible prophecy, we're just not talking through our hat. See, there's a divine theory involved here. And the divine theory is that prophecy is a three-part formula. First of all, there's the prediction. And since most of these predictions were made thousands of years ago, it conforms to the criteria we were talking about yesterday, about those five points about Bible prophecy. Now, this generation is very fortunate in that a lot of the things that were predicted have now been fulfilled. See, when I was a when I was growing up, I don't want to give you a, a personal dissertation here, but um, there was two of us in the family. My brother was five years older than than I was, and uh, he if he got below ninety six percent in algebra, he he thought he failed. He was one of those uh, types of students. Uh, when he was 20, 
uh, he had been to college for two years, and he became an atheist. He literally took his Bible that my mother had given him and put it in a fire and burned it up. I'm 15 years old at this point. What am I going to do? Am I going to say, well, this fellow went to college and he, he must know what he's talking about? Um, or what? So, uh, fortunately, I had parents who were very, <clears throat> very attentive about the subject of Bible prophecy and had given me uh, something on which to form an opinion. Now, in those days, uh, my kids think anybody that was born before the Second World War is a fossil. Uh, <laughs> In those days, uh, there wasn't all that much to go on. The Jews hadn't gone back yet. They trickled back a little bit, but there was no Jewish state. Turkey had declined. The First World War had come and so forth. But there wasn't all that much you really could hang your head on. But think of what there is now. Now, if you aren't informing your kids about what there is now, you're deficient in your teaching. See, people tell me, how sorry they feel for teenagers. Isn't it awful? The peer pressure. I always thought a peer was a member of the House of Lords, but today a peer is, a, is one of the same. The peer pressure is frightful. The uh, radio and the television and the whole business, terrible. Uh, they really feel sorry for teenagers. Well, let me tell you, brothers and sisters, it's far easier today to be a believing Christadelphian than it was when I was a kid. Far easier because of the connection between these three things. The prediction, the fulfillment, and the result. Now, the result, of course, is belief. Faith. The divine order is faith, which is our doctrine, hope, which is our prophetic understanding, and charity, or agape, or love, which is the icing on the cake. And don't ever let any Christadelphian come in here and give you the reverse order. As if the big thing is agape and these other two things we can worry about later. That is a wrong order and a very dangerous order in, to promote among our, uh, with our understanding. So on page two, we must move along, but I, I don't want to... Um, um, go on without wrapping up why I spent a day on that point. Um, we say here, about a third of the page down on page two, that um, the fulfilled prophecy performs the same function in our day as the gifts of the Spirit did in the first century ecclesias. That is, to authenticate the Word of God, whether spoken as in the first century, or written as in the 20th century. Now, that's a short sentence, but there's a lot in it. And if you get a handle on the theory of why God put the thing down this way, what it's all about, and give it to your children and to your Sunday school scholars, you'll give them the foundation that they can withstand the teaching of the theory of evolution and rock music and all the other baloney that's out in the world. But if you don't, they're just like a lamb's going to the slaughterhouse. Now, I'm going to just briefly mention um, number six. I'd like to spend a whole morning on it, but 
The point that I'm trying to make in that is this, that conduct or behavior or our conception of, of right and wrong, in other words, our moral concepts uh, and how we practice them are a derivative. They're a byproduct of our faith, which is our doctrinal position, and not the reverse order. I don't know why people can't understand that simple concept, that moral behavior is a derivative of belief and not the other way around. So, at the end there of number six, we say, we quote 1 John 5 and 4. Now, listen to what John says. This is the victory that overcometh the world. Now, there's only... Write this down. There's only... Maybe I'll stop for a minute here. This isn't in the notes. But there's only two things that affect the mind. There's, there's only two. There's only two things that keep coming into the mind all the time that affect it. And number one is the world. And the world is all a guck out there. The whole educational system, the whole media system, the whole economic system, the whole business out there is the world. And it keeps coming into your head all the time through the media, through uh, the educational system, through radio, television, the whole... It's like pouring into the head all the time. So that's one thing that affects the mind. The other thing is the Word. Then there's the only two things. Now, if you think you can get anything about God any other place except through the Word, I got news for you. You can't. You can look at television till you're cross-eyed, and you will find not one syllable about the Word coming into the mind. And if your time is spent watching that garbage, and you think that it doesn't affect the mind, you also are deceived, because that's the world coming in. And the only counteractivity we have to the world pouring into the mind is the Word. And that's why several brethren have already warned everybody to read the Word and be familiar with it. Tapes are great, but they are no substitute for the Word coming into the mind. Now, that's a summary of what I'm trying to say here in, in uh, number 6. We're going to go over now to page 3. I uh, have to skip a few things that... I'd like to cover, but we won't. By the way, the title of Islip Collier's book was Conviction and Conduct in that order. And that's the order. You get convinced of something, your conduct will be a byproduct of that. You ain't convinced, your conduct will show it. It'll be no good. Now, we say here on page 3 that divine revelation comes by two methods. And the two methods are signs and times. Uh, some of the other brethren, Calvin last night and so on, have been talking about the signs. I'm going to skip that now. I'm going to talk for a minute or two about times. And because we're going to be talking quite a bit the balance of the week about time periods, so we have to uh, do a little bit of groundwork. Now, uh, we measure time. We got down here by... Four things, days, months, years, and weeks. So, I have here uh, this planet Earth. I have here 
the uh, planet moon, and that light up there is the sun. All right. Now, the first thing is we want to define what is a day. What, what do these things do? There's the sun, here's the earth, and here's the moon. What, 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 what happens to define a day here? Yeah, this planet Earth, if you put a blue mark over here and you turn around once so you hit the blue mark again, relative to the sun, is one day. A revolution of once on, the, on its axis is a definition of a day. All right, what's the next one? Is a month. Now, what do we have to do to define a month? Right. In other words, if you put a red mark over here in space and you, uh, the moon is constantly going around this thing all the time. So one, one time around the whole orbit is, is a definition of a month or a lunation. Luna being the Latin word for, for month. That's the definition of a month. All right. What's a year? Right. Now, that's the sun up there. This thing is spinning all the time. This thing is going around. I haven't got enough arms to run this, run this thing. But uh, if that's the sun up there, this thing is constantly spinning. I won't spin it. But um, the, the, if we go way out and I went way around the end of the room and back up here again and got back to the same spot, that is defined as a year. So, uh, we've defined them all now. Now, what do I have to do with these three things to get a hold of a week? Does it, is it this or this or this or what happens? Where'd the week come from? Yeah, somebody back there said God. The the only one of the four that is a, you might say is a, is a um, doesn't have anything to do primarily with the with the heavenly bodies is the fourth one, which is a week, and it was arbitrarily chosen by God to be seven revolutions of this planet on its axis. That is the, de is the definition of a week. It is a duration of seven days. Well, that's fairly elementary, but uh, no earth-shaking revelation there. Now, when we come to the divine measurements, remember that God divinely uh, arbitrated that the week was to be, you might say, his private measurement, we find that as we go through the scriptures, this divine measurement of seven uh, is the is the uh, key to an understanding of virtually all of the time periods. Now we've listed ten of them here, and I want to briefly just go with. Uh, we'll just go over them. First of all, there's a week of days, and I've listed. We won't take time to read these passages of scripture uh, in the interest of time, but nevertheless, I just want to cover this foundation work um, quickly so we'll have it. First of all, there's a week of days, which is in Genesis of seven days. Then there's a week of weeks, or seven times seven days, which is 49 days. And that, of course, uh, uh, the Feast of Pentecost was, uh, Pena being 50 in Greek, uh, was 50 days, or, or the day after the 49th day in the, under the law of Moses. There was a week of months. This, of course, was under the law. A week of years, the, the um, uh, Sabbatarian year. There was a week of weeks of years, which was the Jubilee year, which was 7 times 7 times 1, which is 49 years. There was a week of years of years, 
which is 7 times 360, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, uh, is 2,520 years. A week of decades of Daniel of 70 years, we'll be talking about that too. A week of weeks of decades, or 490 years, which is the famous prophecy in Daniel 9 of the 70 weeks. Uh, a week of week of weeks of decades. Now this last one was was um, developed by Brother W.H. Carter, who wrote a book, maybe some of you have it on your shelf, called Times and Seasons. And he believed that the, the grand period of, of um, that would consummate the whole business was a period of week, week of weeks of weeks of decades, which is a period of 3,430 3, years, which he measured from the Exodus, which again brings us down to about 1990. Um, a week of millenniums, we'll be talking about that in more detail later, which is seven times 1,000 years. Now, when we were talking about those heavenly bodies, um, it, it, would be, it would be nice, I guess, if, you, if God had seen fit to run by the metric system where you'd have uh, um, 10 minutes, or 10 seconds equals one minute, 10 sec- uh, minutes equals one hour, 10 hours equals one day, 10 days equals one week, 10 weeks equals one month, 10 months equals one year. You know, the, the uh, metric system didn't work that way. It's a very complicated system, which uh, scholars over the centuries have wrestled with and tried to to um, mathematically analyze it so the thing could be configured and have some sense made out of it. Um, so we'll just quickly go over this. There, there's two ways to measure a year. One is by the, the revolution of this thing around the, the sun, and the other is... Uh, 12 lunations, which is this thing going around here 12 times. Now, they don't coincide, as you can see by this little chart here, which is also on page 3 in the middle of the page. The solar year is 365 days, 5 hours, 48 minutes, and 45.51 seconds. A lunar year, that is 12 lunations. Um, We also get the word lunatic, because in the old days they thought people that were a little bit crackers, um, were struck by the moon. That's why they're called lunatics. But lunar is from the Latin luna, which means moon. A lunar year, that is 12 lunations, is 354 days. It's 11 days short. 8 hours, 48 minutes, and 34 seconds. So, for 1260 lunar years, you have only uh, 1222.46 solar years. 1,335 lunar years, we'll be talking about these later, is 1,295.22 solar years. Now, if you'll turn to the um, first chapter of Genesis, you will see that the Almighty has instructed us to use these heavenly bodies as measurements of time. I think this is an important point, because um, if you um, don't understand that, it seems to me that some of these newfangled theories can throw you off the track. Um, Genesis 1, <clears throat> 1 and 14 uh, says, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them, that is, the lights of the, of the firmament of the heavens, be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. 
Now that word seasons there is the Hebrew, I know how to pronounce it, we'll say moed. Um, and it is the same word that is translated in Daniel 12 and 7 by the word times. So when we come to Daniel, and, we're, and Larry has been talking about this this morning, when we come to Daniel and are talking about time periods and times, time, times and a half, we, we're on good ground. We're not, we're not uh, uh, picking this cherry off a tree randomly. We're picking it off the tree because we are told in, in uh, Genesis 1.14 that God put those things there for signs and seasons and times, which, of course, uh, he has further expanded in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation. Now, so there's a solar year and a lunar year. There's also another year that is used more than either one of them in the Scriptures, and that is called the prophetic year, which is a period of 360 days. It happens to be an, almost an average between the two. In other words, if you add these two up and divide by two, you almost come to uh, 360 Remember also that uh, a circle, if you, if, you, if you study geometry in high school, how many degrees are in the circle? 360. Well, of course, that goes back into Babylonian times. And, and some, some uh, astronomers believe that the Earth at that time only took 360 days to go around. It, it's, it uh, slowed down a bit. Now it takes 365, but... And, and that may be right. Um, there's Velikovsky, you know, has written two or three books uh, saying that um, the, the the Earth has not, not always been uh, sitting up straight the way we have it. Uh, at one time it was the other way. And uh, he also thinks that the rotation of the Earth has not been constant. In fact, it, it varies by seconds. They know that I can't remember whether it's speeding up or slowing down, but uh, it does vary by a few seconds each year, even now. So, uh, the fact of the matter is, and we're, we're now, down now at the bottom of page 3, the fact of the matter is that um, prophetic measurements are given by times. And uh, we'll, we, we may just um, uh, take a minute now to, to um, have a look at one. We'll, we'll, we'll look at a couple of these. What time is it? Um, Leviticus is the first one. It's a very important um, period in connection with the nation of Israel. When the when Moses was telling the people, look, if you do right, you're going to have blessing. If you do wrong, you're going to have cursing. This is in the 26th chapter of Ezekiel. Um, and say verse 14 says, But if he will not hearken unto me, and will not do all these commandments, then he tells them what's going to happen. And in verse 18 he says, If he will not yet for all this hearken unto me, then will I punish you seven times more for your sins. And in verse 28 he says, Then will I walk contrary unto you also in fury, and I will chastise you seven times for your sins. Now, we use the word time to mean the word occasion. In other words, is he going to chastise them on seven different occasions? Going to give them a licking seven on seven different occasions, or is he talking here about a time period? In other words, is it is a is it a system of duration? Well, we know from other parts of Scripture that it is a system of duration. Well, it's not a question he's going to give them a licking seven seven occasions. It was a question that they were going to be chastised for a grand period, which he calls here seven times. Now, when we go over to the book of Daniel, and Larry touched on this 
this morning, and um, I'm not going to labor it because I think most of us pretty well know it, but just to show you that we're not following cunningly devised fables, um, in the fourth chapter um, of um, Daniel at verse 25, you remember that Nebuchadnezzar's dream was being interpreted uh, for him by Daniel. And uh, he was told that he would be driven like a beast of the field uh, and that his kingdom, while it was going to remain intact as a kingdom, he himself personally was going to suffer uh, grievous damage. And he says in verse 25 of Daniel 4, They shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall... Uh, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee. Now, we know from both history and from the, the Greek, uh, the um, call the words, that um, he was actually seven years in this degradated position. So now we have a clue that there's a connection between the scriptural use of the word times and, this, and, and years, because it was, it was exactly seven years that Nebuchadnezzar um, was in this degraded position. And so we have here, we say a, the key to the whole business is Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. Now, he was a special vessel picked by God. It wasn't just by accident that he got the vision of the great image and so forth. Now here he is again being told that seven times would pass over him. And the, the Chaldee word idon means a year. If you want to look that up, it's in strong, Strong's Concordance with that number. Now, I don't think I'm going to spend a lot of time on the, on the latter paragraph of, of chapter 3, but to, just to say this, that there is a, a body of evidence, in my view at least, that can be brought forward to demonstrate that the scriptural time is represented as a period of twelve hundred of three hundred and sixty years. In other words, when it says uh, time times and a half, the time is three hundred and sixty years. Half a time, of course, would be one hundred and eighty years. Now, that is a fairly complicated uh, body of evidence that needs to be brought forward. There, uh, it isn't. You just can't explain it to somebody in five minutes. But rather than take the time to go into that thing, I think I would ask you to um, just accept that as a, as a working principle that the times of Scripture are a period of 360 years. All right, now we'll go to page 4A. And I want to spend some time now on this, the day for a year principle. Brothers and sisters, for, let's see, from the days of the Reformers, even before that, uh, the days of Mead, uh, Bible, um, prophetic students of the Bible, what am I doing? From the days of, of Mead down, all through Sir Isaac Newton, Bishop Newton, Bickersteth, uh, Elliot, uh, Grattan Guinness, um, Faber, 
and, and, and all sorts of others that I don't come to my mind just for a minute, accepted that biblical prophecy was based on this principle, a day-for-a-year principle. Now, when they, they uh, came along, the Reformers, and challenged the Pope as the Antichrist and the man of sin, uh, he had a, a crown that he wore. Was, it was in three tiers. And on the top, it had the word mystery. So, the Reformers were telling the people that the Catholic Church was the great man of sin, the great apostasy. And, you know, in the book of Revelation, it says the woman had the word mystery on So, the Reformers said, look at that. There's that guy sitting there with that hat on, and he's got the word mystery right on there. Well, the Catholic Church aren't, you know, too bright, but they're bright enough to do this. Get a new hat. And leave the word mystery off. So today there's no mystery on the hat that he wears. Still a triple crown, but the word mystery's gone. Well, the as I say, all, uh, the the um, people who were studying Bible prophecy uh, built their case, you might say, on the day for the year principle. The Catholic Church came along and said that principle is wrong. There ain't no such principle as the day for the year principle. That all these Time periods, like time times and a half, 1260 days in the book of Revelation, are literal days. You see, if you, if you have a period of 1260 days, literal days, all you have to do to figure out how many years it is, is divide by 365, and uh, you have three decimal something, uh, 0.5 literal days. Um, so that's what they said it really meant. Uh, 1260 days, uh, 300, 3.5 literal years, I mean. Uh, you really have a period of 1260 literal days. Now, to my amazement, uh, and, and I'm sure Larry's amazement, we have Christadelphians writing books now putting forward the Catholic theory that there's no such animal as a day for the year principle. The things are literal, 1260 literal days. They're all going to be done in the future. There's going to be a period when there's going to be three and a half years when these famous things are going to be done. Uh, this and that and the other thing. Which, in my opinion, is a, a very, very dangerous and retrograde step. And Larry in his class, I hope you're listening carefully to what he's saying because he's dealing with, with this uh, business in more detail than, than I will be doing in this class. Now, in order to show you that the day for the year principle is for real... I think we'd better spend some time on it. If people weren't writing books saying it was false and had no validity, I don't think it would be as necessary to, to deal with it as, it as it is. But the first thing I want to get across is that the day for the year principle isn't a figment of Bishop Newton's or Isaac Newton's or anybody other Newton's imagination. It is a scriptural definition. This is the first thing. It seems to me that this is the very first thing that somebody should get through their head when they're, when they're studying Bible prophecy, that the principle of the day for the year is a divine principle. So let's read it. And I think I have it down here. Yeah, I have, and right at the top of the page. These two verses, and I'll, I'll read them from the screen rather than um, uh, look them up in the sake of time. But listen to this in Numbers. After the number of the days in which he searched the land, even forty days, each day for a year shall ye bear your iniquities, even forty years. 
Now, brothers, I don't know about you, but I don't know what better God can do to put the principle in front of people than that. What do you have to do? Get a, an axe and hit them over the head to show them that this is the way the divine principle works? In Ezekiel uh, 4, this is what he says, For I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days 390 days, so shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when thou hast accomplished them, lie again on thy right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty years. I have appointed thee each day for a year. Now, is it possible that somebody can come along and say that the day for the year principle is a figment of some um, Bishop Newton's imagination? I don't understand this. This has me beat. Because it's plainly set down here in, in, in two places of Scripture, and there's, there's far more to it than that, uh, which I won't take time to go into now because I've only got five minutes left. You can see time goes along pretty fast. Um, now, um, we say here, the day for a year principle is demonstrated and confirmed by the famous Seventy weeks prophecy. In other words, what we're saying here is that God has given us, you might say, a, a test case to see how the day for the year principle works. Now, if here's my idea anyway, that what the Almighty had in mind. If it can be shown that the, seven, the famous prophecy of 70 weeks was fulfilled on the day for the year principle, this is indicative that the other prophecies of Daniel are still fulfilled on the same principle. Let me ask you something. Does it make sense to you to, to have the ninth chapter of Daniel fulfilled, as we will now demonstrate, on the day for the year principle, and, and, and in accordance with what we've got here in, in Numbers and, and Ezekiel, and then have some brother come along and say, well, maybe that, maybe that was fulfilled on the day for the year principle, but the other prophecies in the eighth chapter and the, and the twelfth and so forth are fulfilling some other completely different principles. Does this make sense to you? Because if it does, it sure don't make sense to me. So when we, when we come to a look at the famous prophecy of the 70 weeks, uh, I want, we, we have to sort of um, uh, get this in mind. That in, in each prophecy that we're going to look at with respect to time periods, there's sort of a three-part system. And the three parts involved are, are these three. First of all, there's a starting point. In other words, you have to find out when the, when the prophecy starts in time. Does it start in the days of Nebuchadnezzar? Does it start in the days of Christ? Does it start in the days of, of um, Pope Pius X? When does it start? So you have to figure that out. That's number one to ascertain. The next thing you have to ascertain is the duration of the time period. The third thing is the terminal point of fulfillment. Now, you, you people uh, who study algebra uh, in school know that if you uh, have any two parts of that equation, you can solve for the third part. In other words, if you know the starting point and you know the duration, you can solve for the end. If you know the end and you know the start, uh, you can solve for the duration. So if you have any two, you can solve for the third. Well, in most cases, what happened was we, the Almighty gave us a starting point or we can figure it out. And then by the principle of the day for the year uh, principle, we can figure out the duration. Then we can come to a terminal point. And that's exactly what the balance of this course is going to be. Uh, a, a, a demonstration for all to see that the day for the year principle works 
and that from a given starting point, we measure the duration and we come to an identifiable point of fulfillment which gives us the foundation that the thing is for real because only God can do it. See, we're getting back to that first principle we had on page one again, which is, a, which is the key to the whole business. Now, uh, when we come to the uh, prophecy of the 70 weeks, and um, we will just sort of get started on it. I'll, I'll, I'll go through it quickly tomorrow, God willing. But let's have a look at Daniel 9 for a minute. Because this is where the, this famous prophecy is given. And this is sort of the, the, the litmus paper, the test case, the, the demonstration of how God operates when it comes to uh, giving out biblical information in the field of prophecy. And it begins at verse 24, where he says, Seventy weeks are determined. Now, what part of the three-part formula is that? It's number two, the duration. So now, now we've got one, one of the um, uh, elements of a prophetic structure in place. We know what the time period is of 70 weeks. Are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. Now what function does that phrase occupy in our three-part formula? Yeah, at the starting point. So, so there's no guesswork here, brothers and sisters and friends. And we're not, we're not playing games. We have, a, we have the prophecy stating in a definite way that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem... Seventy weeks are determined, and then, and then these other things that are, are uh, nominated in the text are going to take place right down to the end of chapter 9. Alright? Now, so the trick was, of course, and is, to determine what um, is the starting point date. Because we have to now fix the date. It isn't just a, a nebulous thing. We, we want to fix the date. When is the starting point? Well, the trouble was that there were four decrees that the Persians gave with respect to restoring and building Jerusalem. And they occupied, as you can see here, a period of over 100 years. The first decree was in 536, which Cyrus gave. And I, I've given the text, if you want to... I think Are they on the page? Yeah, they are. They're on the uh, page 4A in the middle. So the trick was to figure out which of these uh, dates w would be the the, uh, the real starting point? Um, well, it turned out that the the starting point turned out to be the last one, uh, 444 B.C. Artaxerxes Longamanus, uh, this is in Nehemiah 2 and 8, gave a decree to restore and build Jerusalem. And, of course, you know Ezra and Nehemiah were involved in the rebuilding of the walls and the, and the uh, reconstruction of a lesser temple uh, in the city of Jerusalem. So now we have two parts of the formula. We have the, the starting point, which is 444 B.C., and we have the duration, which is 70 weeks. The only catch was that it wasn't quite that simple either. The Almighty doesn't make things just um, all that simple always. Because it's the honor of kings, as the um, 
prophet says, to search these matters out. Um, when you look at the better ring. Well, I... Well, um, okay. Um, I don't like doing this because if I do it, every other teacher can do it too. And it's not all that uh, good an idea, I think. I think I'll uh, take this up tomorrow and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go through this. And, and I'll, I'll, what I'll attempt to demonstrate is that the thing was for real. There was a proper starting point, 70 weeks duration, and then a proper ending point that exactly fulfilled the prophecy. And I'll, I'll deal with that, and then we'll go on from there.